0: I'll admit, that was, uh, that was one of those worship sets where I wasn't ready for it to end. So, uh, thank you everybody who did that. That was, that was wonderful, and sometimes it is fun to just worship. And we are so blessed to be able to do that this morning. Now when our Lord Jesus was talking about the last days, He, he gave this uh, warning, He gave this truth, In Matthew 24.10, he said that before he returns, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many will fall away, he said. And that is actually a fact of the last days. And remember that we do live in the last days. The last days being that period between when Christ ascended into heaven and when he returns again. It's a fact of the last days. And if anything, if you watch the internet and you watch the news, this falling away, I can't really say that it's increased, that wouldn't be fair, but it has certainly increased in visibility as people have a mechanism to get their messages out. Apostasy is applauded in public forums. It's all around. Now, apostasy is uh, one of those big terms. What it means is it's a total desertion or departure from one's faith. And when we talk of apostates in Christianity, what we're talking about is those people who once lived a life and once professed to others to be Christians, but then turned away and denied Christ, deny their faith altogether. And when I say that it's somewhat popular on the internet, there's actually lists that track famous, I'll put in quotes, quote unquote famous apostates. It's, it's quite celebrated. Now, I, I picked not a current example. You know, I like to open sermons oftentimes with a little story. And I was talking to Laura, and I said, this, this one is going to hit you really hard this weekend. And uh, I saw her get very serious, like, oh no, what are you going to preach about that's going to hit me really hard? Um, but this example will hit her hard, and it will hit one of my other family members hard as well. The example is Gene Roddenberry. Gene Roddenberry, if you don't know, you will know him. He was the creator of Star Trek and Star Trek The Next Generation and many of the Star Trek movies. So if you're a Trekkie, you know Gene Roddenberry. Well, Gene Roddenberry was actually raised as a Southern Baptist and he wasn't just sort of one of those nominal guys. He was in church just like ours every week. He sang in the choir, actually. But by the time he could get out of the house, when he became an adult, he became quite an outspoken person against Christianity. Religion in general. But Christianity specifically. He said that it was complete and utter nonsense. It's really interesting looking at his life because he had all the markings, everything you would look to as a young man of being a Christian. And for those of you who are parents, he had all of the great blessings of being able to be raised in a Christian household, parents that took him to church. But he would later declare that he could never worship a God who would require people to gather together once a week to bow down and worship and glorify and honor him. He said, A God like that is far too insecure to merit his allegiance. That would be insecurity to require the worship of your creation. He actually has so many quotes that I would love to spend the whole morning just sort of going through his anti-Christian quotes and then picking them apart, but we don't have time for that. So we're not going to do it, but this morning we are actually going to see the ultimate act of apostasy in our passage. It is the betrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ by one of his closest friends, a man who was called directly to follow him. And as we turn to that passage this morning, we need to read that not just as history, not just something that we need to remember, but we need to be warned by that and by all of our modern examples as well. Because you see, it is possible to attach yourself to a church. It is possible to go to church every Sunday and it is possible to join a small group and fellowship with people or a Bible study during the week it's possible to do all of these external things all of which are good but it is possible to do those and still not belong to Jesus Christ still remain unsaved peter tells us in 2 peter 1:10 to be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election paul writes in 2 corinthians 13:5 examine yourselves examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith Test yourselves, he says. Because when we turn to Judas this morning, we are going to see that he did all the other things that the 11 apostles did. But he failed that test. He failed the test because faith is a matter of the heart. You always remember when we talk about the heart, it's our whole being. It encompasses our mind. It's not just our emotions, but it does encompass that. It is our whole being. It is everything we believe. Everything that that makes us who we are. And faith is a matter of heart. It is a matter of true repentance and true faith and true trust in Jesus Christ. Trusting that His person and His work, His death, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension were fully sufficient for our salvation. They're complete. There's nothing that we can add. We come as children, as He tells us to, bringing nothing to the table, but receiving it as a gift from Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we turn now to your word in worship of you, and we do this always, always with a hope that the words spoken ring true, that if there are words spoken that are not true, that they will be struck from our hearts and our minds. But Lord, we are so grateful that you have chosen to speak to us, to guide us, to teach us, and we pray that by the work of your spirit in our hearts, that he will open our minds, that He will open our hearts, that He will guide us through Your Word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we are going to continue in Mark chapter 14. Uh, We'll be in Mark chapter 14, verses 43 through 52. Now you'll remember, it always feels to me like even though it's only been one week in between, when we have a week like Easter that dominates our thinking, and it should dominate our thinking as Christians, It feels like it's been a month to me since we were in Mark 14, but it wasn't that long ago. (laughs) So, if you'll remember, right before Easter, we had been working through progressively that very last evening that Jesus would spend with His disciples before His crucifixion. They observed the final Passover meal, right? And then we saw the Lord institute that great church ordinance, the Lord's Supper, which we will all celebrate today as a body of believers. And then sometime after midnight, Jesus with the 11 disciples who remained, they headed for the garden of Gethsemane. And you'll remember back in verse 27 that Jesus said to them on the way, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And they couldn't believe this. They denied that. And Jesus entered the olive garden. We remember that. He prayed fervently, diligently, passionately, for three extended periods of time because He was facing the reality of what would come in the next 24 hours. That He would bear the weight of the guilt and the shame for our sin. That He would take that to the cross. That He would drink fully the cup of wrath that God would pour out on that sin. He'd come back to the disciples and in their weakness, they couldn't remain awake. Even though He repeatedly warned them to stay on guard, be awake, pray that you might not enter into temptation. Because he knew that that temptation would come soon. But then, that takes us to our passage this morning. I'm actually going to start reading in verse 41, uh, which is is a little back, back where we were last week. And I'm only doing that just so that we have the context. Context is always so important for what we read. And I just want to have the context for our passage, which starts in verse 43. Starting in verse 41. And Jesus came the third time and said to them, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day. I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the Scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. You see, in this passage this morning, if you look back to it, you will see only two men are named, Judas Iscariot and Jesus, the Son of God incarnate. When we know these two names, we know them well, right? Mark introduces us to Jesus in chapter 1, verse 1, as the whole purpose of the gospel that he is writing. He writes, the beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it doesn't take long before we're then introduced to Judas in Mark 3.19. That is at the end of the passage where all 12 of the apostles are named. And Judas is named last, and we read, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Betrayed him. Judas is forever remembered. Forever remembered everywhere for only one thing. His unrepentant and his unforgiven sin of betraying Jesus Christ. And we know who Judas is. I mean, everybody, non-Christians know who Judas is. But our passage still begins this morning by pointing out, while he was still speaking, while Jesus was still speaking. Judas came, one of the twelve. Why does it always say that? Why does it say that? Why does it say he is one of the twelve? Every single time Judas is mentioned, every time the betrayal is mentioned, we get a reminder constantly that he's one of the twelve, as if we didn't know. Why do we need that constant reminder? It's because we become so familiar with these stories. We know Judas. We know he was one of the 12 apostles. We know that he would betray Jesus. But if we are not reminded that he was one of the 12, we fail to see the absolute depths of depravity, the the horror in this particular betrayal, right? Because we know his evil deeds. We actually know what will happen, not from the gospel of Mark, but the gospel of Matthew. We know what will happen to Judas. He'll be consumed with guilt and shame. He'll hang himself in the end. He will die an unrepentant sinner. We know that story. Because we know that story, we don't really think of Judas the way that others would have thought of him at that time. They didn't see Judas, the one who would betray Jesus. They saw Judas, the faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. One of the twelve who walks around with him, who holds his head high, who preaches the gospel. They saw him as a faithful follower. He was a true disciple. He would be a true Christian in our terms. Everything about him looked like a disciple of Jesus. You need to remember, Judas was one of the twelve who was sent out to preach the gospel, to evangelize people. He was given power to do miracles. He could heal. He could cast out demons. And He did. Think of this odd thing. There were those in neighboring towns who might actually claim that they came to a saving faith, a saving knowledge in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, because a man named Judas came to my town and preached the gospel. That is why it's important that we're reminded that Judas is one of the twelve. It's shocking. It's unheard of. It's something that should surprise us that one of Jesus Christ's own inner circle would actually betray Him to this gruesome death. And so you see it if you look at Matthew and you look at Luke and you look at John as well as Mark. Every time they mention Judas, they remind us He's one of the twelve. He's numbered among the twelve. They say it in different ways, but a constant reminder. Judas, remember, He was one of the disciples. wasn't just some guy. And we are supposed to be shocked and we're supposed to be warned when we see that. It should be almost impossible for us to believe. And it certainly was for them. So it is important to look at that and just understand how depraved the human heart truly can be. Because we know that in Judas' case, for the price of a wounded slave, he would betray his master, the king, Jesus. 30 pieces of silver was all it took. And so if we understand that, then it should never be surprising to us that someone can grow up in a church, someone can sit week in and week out and listen to some guy behind a pulpit preach the Word of God and sing or listen to songs being sung, and even outwardly tell people, I'm a Christian, and then progressively harden their hearts over time, chasing their own idol. And leave to embark on a lifetime of seeking some other way to be fulfilled. You see it every week. I was reminded of it again this week. Because we had yet another celebrity evangelical come out and proclaim that he was no longer a follower of Christ. You wouldn't know the name, so I won't bring it up. But this is not just some local yokel who who barely heard the gospel. This is a guy who went to three different seminaries, holds multiple degrees, has a Ph.D., Very outspoken. And he did what all apostates do. He sought immediate approval and applause from a world that hates God. They never uh, go quietly. It was public. It was a video that he posted and it made its way around the internet. And through tears, this man said he was never been happier before. He looked miserable, but he said he had never been happier before because he had finally... Finally, after a lifetime of following Christ, he finally was free. Finally free. When I heard that, that surprised me. I, I hope that surprises you a little bit. I mean, was the Holy Spirit wrong when he inspired the Apostle Paul to write in Galatians 5.1, for freedom, Christ, has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. But you have to understand what happens to an apostate. Because it's not surprising that they would claim to suddenly feel free. Because if you're not really a regenerate believer, if you're not a true believer in Jesus Christ, if you haven't repented and given your sins and your guilt and your shame to Christ alone, and trusted that He paid that penalty in full for you, and you don't have anything to add to that, If you haven't done that, if you don't really believe, then Christianity feels hard. It feels hard. It feels burdensome. Because if you're somebody who sits and listens to the message and still thinks it's up to you to work out your salvation, to work out your faith, to do enough good works, to prove that you can live moral, if that is what you believe, Christianity is extraordinarily difficult. You're trapped in a life of trying to pretend trying to get other people to believe that you're good enough to be a Christian. You're ultimately trying to satisfy and live under some sort of moral rules either established by the church that you belong to or the Word of God. So there is a feeling of relief for a non-Christian with a hardened heart to walk away from the church. That relief doesn't last long. Because pursuing idols never produces satisfaction. But when we look to Judas, it's not any different than what we see today. We have to be thinking something like this had to have been going through his mind. He had for three years lived with Jesus. Lived with those disciples. Suffered through what they suffered. All the while trying to pretend he was something that he was not. He took his pleasure from the world. He chased an idol. He was not turned over to Jesus. Jesus warns all of us in Matthew 7, 13 and 14. He says, enter by the narrow gate. And that is Jesus Christ Himself. Enter by the narrow gate through repentance and faith. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. It's very enticing to people. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. It requires so little of us in so many respects, repent and believe, and yet it requires everything of us. Because we don't just live for Christ, we die for Christ. The dangerous thing, and Judas proves that to us, to sit under the teaching of God's Word and deny the living Word, who is Jesus Christ. That is what he did for three years. He witnessed every miracle. He heard all of the teachings. He experienced truth daily and denied it as he idolized wealth, he idolized status, the pleasures that could come from having more of it. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ was only valuable to Judas if it brought him what he wanted in this world right now. And that actually is the common story of all apostates, right? When they come out and they say, what they're gaining for walking away from the church. Following Christ didn't give them whatever their hearts most desired. And it wasn't Christ. John 12.6 tells us of what Judas's idol and his obsession was. Says he was in charge of the money bag and he used to help himself to what was put into it. The first commandment, as we know in Exodus 23, is you shall have no other gods before me. Matthew 6, 21 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And Judas's problem was that he found his self-worth, his pleasure, his satisfaction, everything he wanted in life, his joy in something other than God. He was ultimately guilty of idolatry and his heart followed directly what he treasured most in life. And that led to the greatest betrayal recorded in human history. You see, for the believer, our treasure is Jesus Christ. Not just found in Christ, it is Jesus Christ. So it's actually easy. We're not looking to be freed from Christianity. It's easy. Even if we suffer, even as we struggle against temptations, It's our treasure is in Christ alone. And therefore, following Him brings us joy. As the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. See, for a believer, there is absolutely nothing that you can take away from us. There's nothing you can take from a true believer because Jesus Christ is our treasure. It is all we have. It is the only thing worth dying for. Nothing else has power over us. How freeing is that? There is nothing in this world that has power over us. No threat can keep us from the joy that we find in gathering together to worship our living God. Nothing. We follow Christ. We treasure Him. We can say with confidence, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Right? Psalm 118.6. We can look at the psalm we read this morning. Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's. Everything in it belongs to Him. It is for His glory. And when we know that, and He is ours, and He is our treasure, we can't help but take joy from that. And yet we do have people who walk away and we have Judas as the example who walked away. And there's always this question looming out there. Was Judas a true believer in Jesus Christ who was then lost by his own decision to betray Him? No. No. How about the others? How about the the example I gave today, but you can find them all over the internet. Almost daily they pop up. What about these modern day examples? Are they believers? Are they believers who are saved and then lost their faith and lost their salvation because of something that they did? No. That is a wrong way to look at it. What does the Bible tell us? The Bible tells us if you repent and if you believe, you will have eternal life. You will have eternal life. You are saved. You are reconciled to a holy God. If you have eternal life, it's eternal. If you can lose it, it was never eternal. It's an oxymoron. You can't have eternal life and then lose eternal life. It was never eternal to begin with. So either the Bible is lying, which it is not, or we are approaching this issue oftentimes the wrong way. No, these weren't true believers who lost their faith. What's difficult for us is that many, many people appear to be true believers. They appear to be true disciples of Jesus Christ. And we can't judge. We can't be good judges of that. Nobody knew Judas would betray Jesus. But we're not asked to judge that either. God does. We do know in the end. Because if they fail to persevere in the faith until death, then we do know at that point. If they walk away, we do know. But we can't know before that. 1 John 2.19 makes it crystal clear. 1 John 2.19 They went out from us. They left Christianity. They left the body of believers. They went out from us, but they were not of us. Don't be deceived. They were never true believers. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. They would have persevered to the end. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not that they all are, hey, I always get tongue-tied on that last bit. That they all are not of us. There we go. No case of apostasy. No case of a hardened heart against God is more visible than the betrayal of Judas. You can find it on the internet, but this is the one. Because not even the other disciples who lived with him, who spent every day and every evening with him, for three years had a clue that he was not a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And so he comes that night. They know now, Jesus has has sort of outed him at that last Passover meal. So Judas approaches Jesus on that night. And with Judas, Mark 14, 43 tells us, came a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And these are the three constituent bodies of the Sanhedrin. right? The, The ruling class, the ruling body over the Jewish religion, over the temple. But it wasn't just a mob of people that they had endorsed. They were there too. Luke twenty-two fifty-two 52 has Jesus actually addressing them. He addresses the chief priests, the officers of the temple, the elders who had come out against him. They're all there. This again is a terrible thing. These are the very people charged by God to lead his people in righteousness, to teach scripture and truth and worship, and they had failed. And they failed miserably. Power, prestige, control over others were far more important to them. That is what they craved. That is what they sought. And they even placed the approval of the secular pagan government of Rome over worship of their Messiah. John 11, 48 gives you that glimpse. We know that Jesus had condemned their works-based religion. He offered the only way to true uh, salvation. Repentance. Faith, full submission to Jesus Christ, and they hated Him for it. So they want Him silenced. And they think in this moment that they can arrest and kill Jesus to remove that barrier to their power, to their false teaching. But it's not just them that's there that night. There were others. The Romans. Mark doesn't really mention them, but John 18.3 and verse 12 there tells us the Roman soldiers were there. And when you see that, you have to recognize this is a very odd partnership. Jews and Gentiles coming together. These are two groups that hated each other. The Jews were waiting for the destruction of all Gentiles. The the Roman pagans hated the Jews. They absolutely hated each other. They were the clean and the unclean. The God-worshippers and the pagans uniting together. And they seemed to unite together over one thing, and that was the arrest and murder of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And you see again, as you do often here, that evil and rebellion against God is a uniting force for the unsaved, for the unrepentant and the false converts today. It is a uniting force against His church. So the Sanhedrin brings the Romans. They bring a lot of Romans. Romans. By the way, John 18:3 tells us it was a cohort of Roman soldiers, and that is 600 to 1000 Roman soldiers in a cohort. Whether they brought all 600 or 1000, we don't know, but we can know one thing. It was a lot. It was a lot of soldiers, a tremendous show of force in the night to ensure that Jesus Christ, the living word, the son of God is silenced. Great example of tyranny. Silence your enemies and do it at night with a huge show of force. Mark 14.44, now the betrayer, speaking of Judas, had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. When you read that, do you pause and wonder why in the world does he need to give them a sign on who Jesus is? I mean, Jesus is extraordinarily public. He had been in the temple all week. Everybody knew who He was. He had created all kinds of commotion, and we have to remember, and we can look to Isaiah 53, 2 for this, we have to remember who Jesus really was as a man. Isaiah 53, 2 says, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. When the eternal Son of God took on a human nature, when he was born of a virgin, when he lived as a man, he did just that. He lived as a man. He had all the physical characteristics that we all have. He wasn't taller. He wasn't more beautiful. He didn't have some halo around him. This was not that Nordic Jesus picture with blue eyes and stands out in the middle of a bunch of of Jews of the first century. No, that, that isn't Jesus. He was the son of a carpenter. He was a man who worked with his hands. He would have been completely indistinguishable standing among a group of fishermen and others. He was a man. And in the darkness of night... Even with a full moon, nobody would know for certain who Jesus was standing there. There's no halo around him. Any sign that Judas picked would have done. He could have given any sign. The method chosen to identify Jesus is particularly noteworthy. The kiss. The kiss in that culture would not only be an act of affection, it would express devotion, love, respect, and great loyalty. That Judas chooses this sign shows the absolute depths of his hypocrisy. In many ways, when I read this, I, I think of it as akin to people who, who deny Christianity and immediately feel the need to go out and post all kinds of garbage on the internet. Right? It's this odd thing that people do. They don't just leave. They leave big. And Judas leaves big. Verse 45 says, When he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Luke 22, 47, and 48 tells us that as Judas drew near to Jesus to kiss him, Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Every time I read these, I think time after time after time, Jesus catches him right in the middle of what he's about ready to do, as if to say, you can stop. You can repent. He doesn't. He doesn't. Judas displays just how low a human heart can go. Just how depraved one can become in showing false friendship, false love, false loyalty while seeking personal gain. It's interesting here. In English, we only have one word for kiss. It's kiss. In Greek, there are several ways to say this. And in this verse right here, when Judas kisses Jesus, it's an intensified Verb. It means it's an over-the-top, lengthy, loyalty-showing display of submission. It is supposed to strike us. It was despicable what Judas was doing. And it's tough because if you really stop and think, you have to understand that every step of the way, Judas could have stopped. He could have stopped. And he didn't. Because he did not fear God. He did not love God more than he loved himself and other things. And he falls into the same trap that so many people do today. They want God to be a part of their lives in its own little bucket, but not when God interferes with their bigger and better and other loves. And so they think they can remain in control. And this was a painful episode for Jesus. The pain is best summed up in the prophetic words of King David, Psalm 55. through For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. Sometimes I think when we read these stories, we can almost believe that Jesus was impervious to the personal feelings, impervious to the hurt of betrayal. And that is dreadfully wrong. We should not read it that way. Jesus loved people, and He loved people in a purer and holier and more complete way than we can even imagine. This hurt. Enemies are hard to deal with. Hatred is difficult for us to accept. But betrayal by a loved one Someone who's close to you. Someone who has lived life with you. Betrayal from somebody like that is excruciating. It cuts to the core. So how does Jesus respond to this? This is the greatest insult. How does He respond? He responds by living a command. He has given us a very difficult command. We might argue it's one of the hardest commands that Jesus gives us. We find it in Luke 6, 27 and 28. He says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. We all know those verses. But it is hard to actually live those verses. So what does Jesus do here? What does he do to this gross abuse of his love, his friendship? This kiss by a hypocrite. Does he smite Judas right there, strike him dead, and then go to the cross? No. Does he yell at him? Does he chastise him? No. His reaction shows just how he lived that command. After Judas kisses Jesus, Matthew 26, 50, Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Friend, do what you came to do. That is what a life completely dedicated to prayer, doing the will of God, can do. This was the worst betrayal. The most hurtful type of betrayal. Absolutely grievous. And Jesus was not consumed by it. He didn't lose control. He wasn't conquered by personal hatred or grief. No, He continued to reach out to Judas. Friend. He calls him. I can think of a lot of words that I probably would have uttered to Judas in that moment. Friend would not have been one of them. Folks, if you ever feel like you are justified in hating someone, Jesus shows right here, you are not. You are not. He will go to the cross. And he addresses him as friend. We have to decide that we are going to who listen to God's Word, we're going to leave our pain, our hurt, our anger with God and we're going to trust Him because we know that He is just and He will ultimately take care of things. He calls us only to pray, to love, to forgive. Romans twelve seventeen through 21 makes this point clearly. And we're not just called to listen to this. We're not called just to trust God and believe Him. We're called to do all those things, but we're called to live it to actually live in accordance with His Word. Verse 17, Romans 12, 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. It runs so counter to our culture. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written... Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. He is thirsty. Give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What do you see? Friend, do what you came to do. It continues in Mark 14. He does do what he came to do. Verse 46. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now here it is particularly helpful with Mark giving his very short and punchy account of these events but to fill in the gaps with some of the other gospel accounts. We know that the disciples had two swords with them. For example, Luke 22, 38. But the most interesting thing is what happens between that kiss and between when that errant swing of the sword, make no mistake about it, he was trying to kill him. He just wasn't very good at it. Between that errant swing of the sword, chops off the ear of the slave of the high priest. fisherman may not be the best swordsman. That's probably not the message from this text, but it's true nonetheless. And what happens in between that kiss? And that swing of the sword is that Jesus demonstrates that he is sovereign. He is in control of every aspect of all things, even his own arrest. So you have to take the things in steps. Judas kisses Jesus. Jesus sees him coming into the garden. He says to his disciples, "Rise, they're coming." Judas comes in, they have their exchange, he kisses Judas, he turns, he approaches the armed crowd in John 18:4 through 10. Then Jesus, knowing I'll say that a little slower for those who are trying to write it down. John 18, 4 through 10 is where we're picking that up. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, he knew every bit of it, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, he betrayed him, was standing with him. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Strikes you a little bit odd, it's the translation, I am he, I'm sure. That is a smoothing so that we can read that in English. You actually have the Greek construct there that literally is an emphatic version of I am. I am. If you're reading the ESV, you'll notice a little translation footnote that will actually tell you that down below. Jesus answered the question, who are you looking for? We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He answered that question with the divine predicate, I am, which goes back to Exodus 3, 13 through 15, where God is speaking to Moses from the burning bush. And it says, Exodus 3, verse 13, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel I am has sent me to you. It concludes in verse 15 This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. You see, the message that Jesus delivers to the Romans and to the religious leaders right there and to all of us for all time is that he is the Son of God. He is God, he is the second person of the Trinity. He is the Son through whom all things are created. And through every created thing is sustained every second of every day. I am, he says. He is not under arrest by their power and he makes that clear. They are completely subject to his power. But he will choose to go with them. By the supreme supernatural power of God, they are thrown to the ground at the mention of the divine name by the Son himself. And they cannot stand. And when they get back up, verse 7 continues, so he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus had answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have not lost one. That word, by the way, you can look back at John 17, the high priestly prayer. Then Peter having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. Now it should make more sense. Emboldened by what he just saw, Peter must think it is time to fight. It is time for victory. Jesus just blew the whole crowd over by saying, I am! And they all fell over. And when they get back up, he draws his sword. It's time to win. It is time for victory. He's emboldened by what he saw, and he launches forward for the attack. Matthew, Mark and Luke, they don't name Peter, of course. But John was written many years later, after Peter had already been martyred, crucified. There's no longer a risk of reprisal, so John has given us this full account. This Roman cohort, no doubt now back on their feet, are drawing swords ready to flight, blood is pouring down Malchus's face. And Jesus responds in Luke twenty-two fifty-one. 51. He said, no more of this. No more of this. And he touched his ear and he healed him. And I tell you, every time I read the story, he touched his ear and healed him. I, I stop understanding what I'm reading because I'm thinking, then it must stop, right? How do they keep going at this point? They just witnessed a miracle. All of these people did. They actually witnessed two of them. They witnessed everybody being blown over by Jesus when he declares, I am, saying that he is God, he is all powerful. But then they just saw a man's ear cut off. I have never seen a man's ear cut off with a sword, but I imagine there's a lot of screaming and a lot of blood shooting out of that ear because it's on the head, right? Blood spraying everywhere, Malchus is screaming in pain, and Jesus touches him and it's healed instantly, Instantly, he can hear, he's out of pain, he's standing there. And and how does it not stop? How does the story not end right there? And so I'll say something that I've said many times before. Nobody can claim that if they just saw a miracle today, they would believe in God. Nobody can actually say honestly that if God just showed me A miracle, I would give my life to Jesus Christ. I'm sure I would. It doesn't work. A miracle, and all of the miracles in the Gospels, prove that He is God. But that is not enough to be saved. Faith is a matter of the heart. It is a grace. It is a gift from God. God's kingdom is not won by waiting on miracles. And God's kingdom is never won by violence. We need to take that from this too. All throughout human history, people have gotten this wrong at different times in the church. It is a great error. The real gospel does not need help from the power and might or weapons of men or people. It is purely a matter of the power of the Holy Spirit. That's it. We would do well to remember 2 Corinthians 10, 3-4, For though we walk in the flesh... We are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Ephesians 6.12 says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. Battle is not physical. Do not beat someone into submission. And faith in Jesus Christ. The battle is spiritual. That is why we pray for the lost. That's why we pray. Mark 14, 48-50. Jesus said to them, after all of this had happened. "Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me. Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching. And you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. You're here on Good Friday, you get to hear all the talk about what robber really means. And it's not referring, obviously, to a thief here. It's referring to an armed, dangerous bandit. Somebody who would violently resist arrest, fight to the death. And so what Jesus is saying here was, was one of those comments that should have humiliated greatly everybody standing in that crowd. It points out their hypocrisy. It points out their cowardice. It points out their weakness. It should have humiliated them. There was no place more public in Jerusalem than the temple. And there Jesus was, unarmed, peacefully teaching, day in and day out. And they did nothing. They did nothing. Right here, He is exposing their cowardice, their fear, and their fear of people, really, who for a short time followed Jesus. Pointing out to them that like the cowards they were, They came at night, and they came with force, force that wasn't needed. Jesus' enemies had tried all throughout his ministry to arrest him. We've seen that over and over in the Gospel of Mark. But it was never successful because it was never the appointed time in God's plan to redeem people. But now it was time. And Jesus notes that Scriptures must be fulfilled. It was all foretold. It was all planned. It's all throughout the Scriptures. These men were fulfilling Scriptures, but they would not escape the guilt for their evil deeds. They were complicit in what they did. But you can almost see this like Genesis 50, 20. It says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This is evil deeds by evil men, and they will pay the penalty. Unless they repent, unless they believe, and you've got to get to the book of Acts before you start seeing that story unfold. But of course, Jesus had foretold just back in verse 27 that all of His disciples would flee when He was arrested. And you see that in verse 50. It says they all left Him and fled. And when He made that statement, He quoted Zechariah 13.7. And it's worth reading again. There's I just picked this one because it's here. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. And not only the disciples scattered, every single follower of Jesus deserted him in that moment. And in fact, Mark adds this one little account that none of the other gospel writers do. Verses 51 and 52, a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. That is one of those verses that uh, people love to kind of dwell on and try to figure out. I mean, is this indeed John Mark writing himself into the gospel, making sure that we all knew that he was actually there at the Garden of Gethsemane? That was the view of a lot of the early church fathers kind of a view that makes sense to me. I tend to want to believe that because we know certain things about Mark. We know, for example, from Acts 12.12 that the church gathered in Mark's mother's house in Jerusalem. So then there's a lot of speculation that the Last Supper might have happened there too. But all of that, I have to tell you, is completely useless speculation. It actually doesn't matter. And the Bible doesn't give us any clues. It does not tell us who this young man was. It is useless to speculate on those things. But what is important from this is the point that's actually being made in the verses themselves. And that is that Jesus Christ experienced complete isolation. Complete abandonment at the time of His arrest. Because even an unnamed bystander wriggled out of his clothes and ran away naked into the night rather than to be caught standing by Jesus couldn't stand. But I want us to take a couple simple lessons from that. From the disciples and this young man who fled that night. The first one is we need to never be so overconfident in our own strength that we'll remain faithful. We love to play the hypothetical games. If this happened to me, I would do this. We need to not do that. We have to recognize that fear of people fear of government, fear of punishment, even fear of the shame that we can get for not conforming to the culture and celebrating evil, abhorrent, sinful behaviors. All of those things that come to us as we follow Christ really do present traps to us, present a snare to us, present difficulties to us. Anybody who has a job knows that these things can present difficulties to them. You're encouraged to believe a certain way, not speak out a certain way. They present real traps to us. So, what is the lesson? The lesson there is we must be clothed with humility. We need to be humble. We need to ground ourselves in God's Word. You cannot approach it any other way. Jesus Himself responded to temptation by doing what? By quoting God's Word. We have to ground ourselves in God's Word. We have to feed on that for our strength. And we must be devoted to prayer. You'll remember not long ago we were preaching, stay awake. Be on guard. Ground yourselves in the truth. God's Word is truth. Here's the second lesson that I want you to take from that. Let's also be very careful not to judge those who fall in their weakness. You need to be very careful Not to judge and ostracize those who for a time seem to slip and fall in that weakness. What are we called to do as brothers and sisters in Christ? As His church? We are called to extend grace to them, speak truth to them, lift them up, call them back to faith. And we know that sometimes it's hard to do. We're quick to judge. And we need to not be so quick to judge that way. Every One of the apostles bailed on him momentarily. They all ran away. They all fled. Not a one of them stood next to Jesus and said, I'm standing here because I believe the truth. Arrest me, kill me, I don't care. None of them did that. They all fled. Two of them would circle back. We'll see that with John and Peter. But they all fled. But they would all rise again in repentance and faith. They would become the pillars upon which the church is built. Is what God called them to be. Everyone fled, but Jesus stayed. He certainly had the power to leave. He demonstrated that in the passage we read in John, but he stayed. He allowed himself to be bound and he went willingly because he was going to drink fully the cup of wrath that we all deserve for our sins. He would lay down his life for his people, as he said he would, for all those who will repent of their sin and believe in Him and trust Him. He calls on us to look to Him and Him alone for our strength. Hebrews 12.2 says this, we must look to Jesus. He is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. That is where our hope comes from. That is where our strength comes from. His joy that it references there is joy in the people that He is going to save by enduring the suffering that He is going to endure. And He calls us all to turn away from our sins, to believe in Him, to trust in Him alone for our forgiveness, to follow Him, to submit ourselves to Him, to worship Him. That is what we're all called to do. That is why we're here this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your word, and yet at the same time, we've recognized that we become so familiar with the stories. Sometimes they don't pierce our heart as they should. Sometimes we fail to feel the pain, to suffer the anguish, to feel the fear as we respond to those repeated calls to fear God, to fear you. Fear you alone. But it is the beginning of knowledge and the beginning of wisdom. We turn our fears towards other things like the apostles that we read about today. And yet we take great hope, Lord, because while they were restored, we know that we too are restored and renewed by our faith in you. Lord, we, we are so thankful for your great mercy, for your grace poured out on us and on your church church bought with the blood of your son. Please God, give us strength to keep it pure, to make it holy, to present it as a pure bride to Christ. And as we do that, God, we need your help as we go out into the world. We know that you have called us not to set ourselves apart from the world, to be, to be a part of it, as a witness, as a light, providing hope to a lost culture. God, that takes more strength than any of us has on our own. We pray that by the power of your Spirit in us, that you would give us great boldness, words to speak, and love for people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.